Welcome to Creative MKE, a conversation show from Imagine MKE, where we talk to creative leaders in Milwaukee and beyond to highlight all the incredible transformative power of their work in our region. We hope that after listening to the pod, you'll be able to imagine our city's arts and culture ecosystem and all the awesome artists, organizations, and creative assets within it in a new way. I'm your host, Elizabeth Gasparka. Hey there, listeners. I hope the beginning of this new year finds you and yours well and healthy. I'm so excited for you to hear today's episode. It's with local filmmaker Chris Thompson of Good Credit Productions. His documentary feature, We Are Not Ghouls, is set to become available on iTunes, Roku, and other video-on-demand film platforms beginning on February 28th. In my conversation, we speak about his impressions of the Milwaukee filmmaking landscape, his journey of creating this film, and what he and film subject Yvonne Bradley hope that audiences take away from the story. It's a story that takes viewers back to the time in the wake of September 11th, when the American government opened Guantanamo Bay, a detention camp in Cuba. According to the American Civil Liberties Union, quote, originally intended to be an island outside the law, where terrorism suspects could be detained without process and interrogated without restraint, the prison and military commissions at Guantanamo Bay are catastrophic failures. At home and around the world, Guantanamo Bay has become a symbol of injustice, abuse, and disregard for the rule of law. And now audio from the trailer from We Are Not Ghouls. Startling allegations this morning from a military attorney who represented an inmate at Guantanamo Bay. It's the tip of, of the iceberg. I got involved in Guantanamo because I raised my hand and said, I'll volunteer. If anybody harbors a terrorist, they're a terrorist. If they fund a terrorist, they're a terrorist. The dark prison, there was no day, there was no night. Gunshots, people screaming. He said, you're going to have to fill in the emotion because I'm kind of dead in the head. The setup of that place was to drive them crazy. It was horrifying. We do not torture. We do not render to countries that torture. We do not torture. Listen to me. Well, I'm not going to comment on the last question. This is so much bigger than just Binyam. How do you investigate the world's biggest intelligence agency? Following the movement of these planes in real time, this is actually the full CIA's fleet. It was a different type of fire in me, not in my name and I fought that case from a different viewpoint than I fought any other case. It really is schizophrenia. But this is a terrible situation. I mean, will you ever be hired as a military lawyer again? Well, I'm doing my job as a lawyer. I think I learned more about myself than I did about Binyam, because I realized that, in a sense, I had been had. One of the subjects of We Are Not Ghouls is U.S. Air Force JAG attorney Yvonne Bradley, who you just heard from. Hers is the female voice, heard particularly towards the end of the trailer. 
She's a lawyer who was appointed to represent and defend Binyam Muhammad, a man facing a death penalty case. According to Good Credit Productions website, believing the detainees at Guantanamo were the worst of the worst in the war on terror, Yvonne's world was turned upside down as she arrived in Cuba and began to untangle an unimaginable case. Spending the next four years battling to uncover the truth, Yvonne's is a captivating story of taking responsibility in the face of corruption at the highest levels of power and the dangers of choosing to stand up for what you believe in. We Are Not Ghouls is based on the book The Guantanamo Lawyers, Inside a Prison, Outside the Law, edited by Jonathan Hafetz and Mark P. Denbo, published by New York University Press. Chris James Thompson began his career assisting director Chris Smith with credits on The Pool and Collapse. His directorial feature debut, The Jeffrey Dahmer Files, premiered in competition at South by Southwest and was acquired and released theatrically by IFC and was declared a New York Times critic's pick in 2013. His other films include Mecca, The Floor, for ESPN 30 for 30, which won an Emmy for short format series, and The 414s, The Original Teenage Hackers, which premiered at Sundance and was acquired by CNN Films to premiere on The Anderson Cooper Show. His company, Good Credit Productions, edits feature fiction and nonfiction films, most recently Chasing Bubbles, Pet Names from Amazon Studios, and Plucked. We Are Not Ghouls is his second feature film as a director and editor. After the break, my conversation with Chris James Thompson. Welcome, Chris, to Creative MKE. Hello, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, really excited to speak with you about We Are Not Ghouls. But before we get started, I want to start by just asking you to tell our listeners a short story of a film or another artistic storytelling experience that you had that left a strong imprint on you. Oh, about a a film that has a strong imprint on me. There's a movie called Style Wars, which is a PBS documentary in the 80s. And I don't know how my brother got it, but he had a VHS copy. We probably just recorded it off the TV, but we had like a blank VHS copy of Style Wars. And it's a documentary about the New York City graffiti scene, hip hop scene, but graffiti specifically. And it follows all these graffiti artists around New York. And most of them are just kids, you know, they're teenagers. And it's the early days of graffiti. So they're explaining why they do it, their motivations and stuff. And it was just wild to me because it was a documentary that was on television and my brother had a tape of it. So, you know, my access to documentaries in the 80s was pretty limited. So that was like one of the first ones I think I'd seen. My brother would just watch it over and over and over and over and over. He ended up becoming a graffiti artist. But so that was definitely like a formative moment of movies and art having an influence on me for sure. Mm. Yeah, call that a little bit more and, and trace from there to where you are today, operating a production company and working as a professional editor and documentary filmmaker. How did you move from point A to where you are now? Yeah, well, 30 years. So it's a lot of time has passed since then to now. But 
I I was in school at UW Eau Claire and I was studying computer science. This is in the early 2000s and I was miserable. I didn't want to be a computer scientist. I was good at it. It seemed like I could get a job doing it, but I was really unhappy. And I saw we there was still Blockbuster. We used to rent DVDs and VHS tapes still. And there was um, uh, an American movie VHS at the Blockbuster in Eau Claire where we used to go. And I remember seeing that it was from Milwaukee and made in Milwaukee and like blew my mind that there was a documentary again available for rent at Blockbuster, which was already really rare. (laughs) And then it was made in Wisconsin. That plugged something into my mind. Because I think before that point in time, I thought only people that made movies lived in LA or New York. And so Mm -hmm. the idea that someone in Wisconsin made a movie, I started researching it a little bit and then learned of the UW Milwaukee film program, which is an experimental Mm -hmm. film school, which was also kind of mind blowing because I thought film school was something that only rich kids in LA or New York did, you know? So it was kind of those two revelations that you could make a movie in Wisconsin and you could study filmmaking in Wisconsin. So I moved to Milwaukee, enrolled. And um, from there on, it was just filmmaking, documentaries, fiction films in every and any capacity I could get my hands on. Yeah. So you're touching on something that we like to highlight on the podcast. Milwaukee is kind of an unsung film town filled with so much talent in part because of the UWM Experimental Film Program. But as of yet, we don't have a lot of incentives for filmmakers to stay beyond their education and produce work here. So why do you choose to stay here as a filmmaker? And why might others? It's a tricky question. I stayed probably because I wanted to make my own movies. Filmmaking is an art form where, you know, there's people making movies on their own in their living rooms where they're the only person that work on it, you know, and it might be a short movie, two minutes or three minutes. And then obviously there's Hollywood blockbusters that five or 600 people might work on that take years to make and cost millions of dollars. And then there's everything in between. And so when I graduated from Milwaukee, I knew I wanted to make my own movies. And it didn't seem like if I moved to New York and, or LA, I would have the resources or time to be able to do that. So in Milwaukee, you know, life was cheaper. Um, I could get a studio space. I could hire my friends, people could work, take days off, work for for less than they might on normal jobs and stuff like that. So it, it just seemed like all the resources that I needed to make my own movies were in Milwaukee. And I maybe wouldn't have those same resources in New York or LA. So and it ended up being true. You know, I, I don't think I would have finished a feature film if I would have moved. I may have had a career that went in different directions, but I don't think I would direct and edit my own films the way that I'm able to living in Milwaukee. So there's a freedom that comes with that sort of lack of infrastructure. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it, there's an industry that's so huge in in New, in New York and LA and Atlanta and Toronto that people are hyper-specialized. They work in one role. They do it over and over and over. They become experts, professionals mm. at it. And they work, you know, they're, they're trades people, they're crafts people. Um, they work on, you know, day-to-day or week-to-week basis on different jobs and stuff like that. In Milwaukee, there's some of that in the commercial industry, but mm-hmm. there, there's not a huge industry producing feature films here. So most people that are making films here are doing hustling to another day jobs or, or working on commercials on the side and then uh, spending all their money making their art, documentaries, fiction films, stuff like that. Mm. I'm just curious, have you seen the film scene change since you've been here? How has it evolved? Yeah. I mean, I think the film scenes changed here a lot because I mean, just the film industry in general in the last 20 years has changed a lot. Like when I graduated film school, YouTube didn't exist. You know what I mean? So there wasn't really a place to put your movie 
that you finished on your own that anyone mm. could see, you know, nationally, mm. the best you could do is burn a DVD and then pass it out or sell it, <laughs> you know? And so it was really limited where you could share your work or how you could get it out. Whereas today, you know, you could shoot a film and put it on YouTube and everyone in the world could watch it tomorrow morning, you know? So in that sense, there's a lot of people in Milwaukee that are making way more stuff that's getting seen by way more people. Mm. But otherwise, I'm not sure how it's changed. I mean, there's been some policy stuff as far as tax incentives for trying to draw outside work that came for a while and they disappeared. So we mm -hmm. had some large films like in the 2010s. I remember there was like Transformers shot at the Art Museum and there was a Johnny Depp movie or something like that. So those situations would be good for individual crew members that wanted to work for a day or two here or there. But mm. other than that, I think the biggest change has been independent filmmaking in Milwaukee has become more accessible. It's slowly getting more diverse. It used to just be strictly white dudes like me with beards, you know what I mean? That hung out <laughs> at coffee and shops. Beards and beanies. Exactly. And, yeah. and that's changing, which is awesome. It's really fun to see people from all different places that look different and, and speak different and have different perspectives are, are slowly diversifying our scene, which I think is the most exciting part, the most exciting change for sure. Excellent. Yeah, more on that. Um, Imagine MKE is is helping to convene a film incentives task force to try to advance incentives for, you know, supporting a film industry in Milwaukee and statewide. So that's something that we're we're working on behind the scenes. But uh, hopefully, we'll have more to report on that very soon. Cool. Now shifting to your your piece. Or I don't I don't think it's fair to call it your piece. Sorry. <laughs> you can call it a piece. <laughs> okay. Okay. Now shifting to your your film production, We Are Not Ghouls. Um, so this has been something you've been working on for uh, quite some time. How long have you been working on it? It's been nine years, nine wow. and a half years, I think. It's been a long time. So how did you initially come to connect with the story of the Guantanamo lawyers inside a prison outside the law? And why did you choose to pursue making it into a film? Yeah. So the Guantanamo Lawyers is a book. Um, it's a compilation of essays from a hundred plus different attorneys that were involved with cases at Guantanamo Bay. So these were attorneys that came from all different places and had all different perspectives. But the through line of all of their essays was that uh, this book came out in 2009. So this was all new info that there was a tragedy of sorts unfolding at Guantanamo and that the American people weren't really aware of it. They weren't mm. Some of uh, some amount of it was hidden, but then also we just didn't want to face it because it was such a crisis. Mm -hmm. um, and I came to find the book actually because um, I was motivated to start reading and researching on the war on terror after a classmate of mine at UWM was detained by Homeland Security. He was a mm -hmm. Jordanian immigrant and he was held for quite a while. And I went to visit him when he was detained downtown Milwaukee and he had uh, his teeth had been knocked out and his teeth oh. were all wired shut. and he was held for a long time and he didn't ever really want to talk about it after he got out. He didn't want to talk about it. Mm. And he just explained to me, like everyone that gets involved with this, it messes their life up, my friends and family. So like, I don't want to involve any more people. I don't want to talk about it. Just forget it ever happened. Huh. And just seeing him go through that, it, it, it was totally obvious to me that that wouldn't have happened if he was, uh, had a white name or came immigrated from a white country, you know, a white Western country. It, it was obvious he was treated that way because of where he came from and what his name was. And it just seemed extremely unfair to me. And so out of that traumatic experience, I started researching how we've treated people uh, since 9-11 in the reaction to that tragedy. And uh, that book, The Guantanamo Lawyers, was one of the most profound pieces of work on the issue that I found. 
And within that book, the essay that was the most um, profound to me was written by a lieutenant colonel in the JAG Air Force program named Yvonne Bradley. And so she's a woman from Philadelphia who was assigned to defend a man at Guantanamo Bay in 2005. And her essay covered those three or four years for life of taking on that assignment and how she sort of went down there thinking one thing. And then once she learned about his case and began working on it, her whole world was turned upside down and it changed the way she thought about um, our country, the military, everything about the world. So I really wanted to connect with her and see if she'd be interested in developing that into a film. And so her essay, her two page or three page essay grew into We Are Not Ghouls, which is a feature film, a feature documentary film that Yvonne and I made over the course of the last eight, nine years. Mm. So I have two follow up questions. Firstly, how has living with this material and and digging into this story and, you know, seeing all of the hardships and all of the the trauma that individuals have endured uh, as a result of being detained, whether at Guant- Guantanamo or, you know, in the city of Milwaukee and our downtown jail, how has living with this this kind of material affected you as a person and as a filmmaker? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's obviously a super dark subject. There's a lot of tragedy involved with researching it and, and learning about these stories. But you have to understand the whole reason I was doing it was because I wanted to know more about what had happened to my friend. And I wanted to know more about the system mm. uh, of power that was in place that caught him into the position he was into. So in a way, it was therapeutic, as dark as any minute or hour, day or year of it was. I was always researching to get to a place where I could find some understanding or some peace with what had happened to my friend, what I saw happen to my friend. So it was nine years of therapy in that sense. Hmm. As dark as it was, it gave me a distraction. It gave me something else to focus on and work towards hmm. completing the movie with Yvonne that was separate from my story, but it was the same. You know what I mean? Like in the middle of those nine years, I probably wouldn't have been able to have a conversation with you about my friend who was detained because it would be too traumatic. Like I'd probably break down. I wouldn't be able to put it into words. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in a way it was therapeutic. Like I probably should have just gone and seen a therapist and got over it in six months or a year. But instead I decided to make a film, which took nine years. But so as dark as it was, it was always light for me because it was progress and and working towards understanding and compartmentalizing this part of my life and, and setting it aside. Mm-hmm inherent in the storytelling that you've taken on through this film is is a lot of bravery, right? I mean, you and Yvonne Bradley are, are choosing to highlight some really intense stuff about the U.S. government. And I'm just wondering, is there fear? Do you have, do you have concerns about, about, you know, putting your name to a story like this and, and the research that you've done? Uh, no, I don't have fear. I mean, I, I think... Yvonne had already told her story. It's been in a book that's mm-hmm. published that was, you know, praised in the New York Times. So she wasn't sharing any information with me that was especially new or challenged anything the government is doing in any new way. Everything in the film that makes us look bad, makes the government look bad, makes the military look bad, you know, has already been public before my film came out. So in that sense, my film was about one woman and her mission and sort of what she went through. Um, socially with her friends and at work and emotionally and spiritually. And so any fear that I had about the reactions to the film were always trumped by the idea that I just wanted to tell this one woman's story. And it was about Mm -hmm. her 
and mm-hmm. everything in there was her truth as she lived it and she saw it. So I think for her, there the fear was much more real because at the yeah. time in 2005, when she was assigned this case, um, you know, the U.S. government hadn't even released the names of the people that were detained down there at that point in time. So she really was stepping into like a situation that was shrouded in secrecy. And so even if she wanted to talk to people about it, there was a lot of security concerns about um, national security, top secret information, what she couldn't come share. So essentially for those three years, four years, she was working on the case. She had to cut off her friends and family and anyone that wanted wow. to talk about it or was interested about it. So she was living this assignment in one sense, flying down to Cuba, flying to England, flying around the world on behalf of her client, this detainee, but then not being able to talk to any of her friends, not being able to talk to anyone else. So for her, I think the idea of fear is another level, right? Because fear resonates in our mind, the unknown. And for her, she was facing three or four years of unknowns of, am I going to be demoted? Am I going to be fired? Am I going to be ridiculed? Am I going to be punished? Am I going to be, at one point she thought she might be jailed. So I think she was dealing with a lot of fear, um, but she's brave. And that's that's what drew me to her story was she was able to face it, compartmentalize it, and then work through it. And it took a lot of time, but she prevailed. And I think her story is one that's so important because she is a, a hero in the purest sense. It's undeniable that she took on a position at great cost to herself. Um, for the benefit of an idea of what she wants the system to be, an idea of what she wants our country to be, an idea of what she believes in ethically and morally that allows her to, you know, fall asleep at night happy and healthy, and and that was ultimately what gave her the energy to push through that fear, however it resonated during those three or four years. Thank you. I don't want to ask you to speak on her behalf in any way, but I'm just curious because, you know, obviously your film has had some really exciting attention and acclaim. You won the the Audience Choice documentary at, at South by Southwest. Yeah. Yeah. The Audience Award. Yeah. Okay. That's the cool. Audience it's Award. A, it's what the audience votes on as their favorite film. Wow. Uh, and we were playing against, that's actually one of my favorite stories. We were playing against a documentary about Mickey Mouse, a documentary <laughs> about Tony Hawk, a documentary about... <laughs> Nolan Ryan, who, and this is in Texas. So literally the most heroic sports figure of all of Texas had a documentary and Yvonne's film won the audience wow. award over all those films. So that's probably the proudest filmmaking moment oh. of my entire career. Amazing. Thank you for highlighting that. <laughs> yeah. My question was in, in all of this, you know, in the process of making this film with you and kind of coming to terms with her own story, do you think there's been any catharsis or any sort of comfort that she's achieved through this this process with you? Yeah, I don't like you said I don't want to speak for her, but we've done enough festival screenings now where she's stood next to me during Q&As and answered this question mm. that that I will say I will repeat her answer which is that um she's found it very cathartic. Mm. And specifically because she didn't tell many people about this chapter of her life, it was sort of a big mystery to a lot of her family and friends what she had done. And they only knew fragments of it. And so for her to be able to tell a stranger all of it, you know, and sort of let go of it and then let let that stranger assemble it into a consumable story, right, that someone could sit down for an hour or two or watch was very cathartic for her to be able to share that. So at the screenings, her friends and family have showed up and you can tell it's like a revelatory experience for them because they're like Mm. blown away. You know, a lot of them didn't know the extent to which 
she had worked on this and mm-hmm. how big of a deal it was. Wow. Yeah, I could see that being somewhat unburdening after so many years of, of holding that so close to your chest. Why is the film called We Are Not Ghouls? Yeah, We Are Not Ghouls is a line from the film. So there's a scene in the film where Dana Rohrabacher, who is a representative, a U.S. representative from California, is taking part of a hearing on the Hill. And he's explaining that this is after about the time that um, Binyam, the character who, or the subject who Yvonne was representing, was detained there, being released right around that time. So like 2008, I believe, my memory serves. And he's saying that in all wars, there's mistakes. It's inevitable that if you go to war, you're going to make mistakes. And the war on terror is not an exception. There were mistakes made in the war on terror. And if we tortured one person, he stumbles and said, if we tortured one person, then he steps back and says, if we mistreated one person, it wasn't because we wanted to. We are not ghouls. We did this because we wanted to protect our family and your family from people who wanted to kill our children, something like that. So it was a really profound line for me because, first of all, he's defending himself and us as Americans by saying we are not ghouls. Hmm. So like whenever you've done something that you have to defend yourself by saying we are not ghouls, you should probably go back and re-examine what you did with a little more clarity. So that, that's kind of the motivation for the film is trying to figure out we are not ghouls. Are we ghouls? Perhaps we are for the way that we treated some of these people down there. But it's also a double entendre because you imagine if you're watching a movie about Guantanamo Bay, you would imagine it's the, the people detained there that are defending themselves saying we are not ghouls. Why are you mm. holding us in here? But it's mm. not. It's about us. And that was important to me because this movie is about us. And it's about how the situation is us and it's ours and what we have or haven't done about it to date represents us and it reflects upon us and our morals and our ethics. And I don't want to stand you know, on a high horse and, and berate us, but I think it is important for us to have some introspection and think about how we got here and what we want to do about it. Mm. What do you hope the audience does about it? If anything, what are what are tangible actions that you would hope people might take after viewing this film? We we played the film at the South by Southwest Film Festival in Austin, and there's a Q and A after one of the screenings, and one of the people in the audience asked Yvonne specifically. He said, "After watching this film, I'm filled with an overwhelming sense of shame, and I have no idea what to do about that. What do you suggest I do?" And her response was, you know, this film makes me look like a hero. But the fact is, everyone could be a hero in some part of their life. Mm. And you just have to think about what that is. For some of us, it might be something big, like defending someone at Guantanamo Bay for three or four years. But everyone knows of someone who's being taken advantage of or who is oppressed or who needs help or doesn't have representation however big or small, and you could be a hero to that person. So I think for her, mm-hmm. her message was so profound, which is that we can get overwhelmed by the the massive size of these conflicts or issues or things that scare us, but not every one person is going to be in the position that Yvonne is in, but we all do have power over some aspect of the world around us. And mm-hmm. how can we use that power to advocate and to help? Beautiful. Thank you. So Chris, I know you've made a number of, you know, really big pieces. This is your second full-length documentary, yeah, in your in your career so far. Yeah, I mean, I've worked on a lot of movies. This is the, my second feature film that where I directed and edited. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Well, I'm wondering from your perspective today, what advice might you give to other young filmmakers, specifically here in Milwaukee, who have <laughs> crazy ambitious ideas? Oh, man. My first piece of advice for young filmmakers in Milwaukee is not to listen to old people like me all the time. <laughs> fair, fair. Because, <laughs> you know, what they want to do and what they want to achieve is probably different than what I wanted to do and what I wanted to achieve. So my advice might, might not be applicable to them. Um, the one thing I would say is that what always helped me the most was finding people that were working on things that I thought was were interesting you know, whether it was art or writing or whatever it might be, and just trying to find a way to spend time with them and see how they do it. Mm. And I think the reason that was so helpful to me was that our idea of making art or being a creative person is often very different from what it actually takes to to do that or to be that person. Mm. And so, you know, there's a lot of trivial parts of filmmaking, you know, spreadsheets and lawyers and insurance and all this kind of stuff, which is really annoying and boring and, <laughs> and is not fun, but it's worth it. So if you can see someone going through all that, you can kind of get a better idea of of what's you know what what's expected of you or what you'd have to do to 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 get to the next level or to make another movie or a bigger movie or your first movie. Mm. Um, so I think just seeing people that are trying to find a way to get access to people that are doing it and just um, watching and, and learning. Great, thank you. So we are not ghouls is going to begin streaming at the end of February. Tell us more. How can audiences? experience your film where can they find it for sure so february 28th is the release for video on demand so it should be available on itunes on people's roku whatever you use to stream at home you should be able to look it up on there and find it um, and then after that it will probably come out on dvds and blu-rays be available to library and maybe a streaming platform eventually broadcast television we'll see after that exciting and where can they find more information about your film for sure so the website is wearenotghouls.com and then my Instagram is Good Credit Productions, where you can kind of follow along our trips to film festivals. Uh, last week, we were at a radio station in New York with it was my, Yvonne and myself and Yvonne's sister, Pam, who's a subject in the film. And we were sitting next to uh, Sean Paul, who's a huge musician, Jamaican reggae musician, hip hop musician. Wow. I have no idea why we were sitting next to him, but it was <laughs> his radio hour. And he was talking about the movie. We were talking about his music. It was a lot of fun. So if you nice. follow on the Instagram, you can see... Uh, little moments like that of releasing the film into the wild. Sweet. Okay. And what's next for Good Credit Productions? It's been a long nine years making it and finishing this movie. So I think I want to catch my breath, mm -hmm. play with my kids. And then I think I really want to focus on trying to find young people in Milwaukee that um, can help us push our industry into a more diverse space in whatever way, shape or form that may be and, and see how I can help them. That's That's what really excites me about getting older in this industry is trying to help young people get in. Wonderful. All right. One last question before I let you go. So as a guest on the creative MKE podcast, mysteriously, you have the power to, to act as the city's imaginary leader of arts and culture. Unfortunately, your tenure only lasts as long as the rest of this episode. So you have to act really quick. So Chris, with this power for the next minute or so, what would you like to accomplish? Power. You're giving me power. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I don't know. I think I would I would hire Polly Morris to take over any decision making 
And then I would double <laughs> every art teacher's salary. I have unlimited mm, money, right? I can double yes. every art teacher's salary. That's <laughs> yep. what I do. I double mm-hmm. every art teacher's salary and I'd, I'd hire a uh, Milwaukee art supporter and champion Polly Morris to help us learn more and see more about what we could do to help support artists. Cause, cause there's people that know way more about the policy and, and, and what really is needed as far as resources and support. And, and I think she's been a champion for so long. And so I, I, my hat's off to her. I know she could do a better job than I do. So I give my power over to her. <laughs> Love it. Nice. Well, thank you so much, Chris. Really appreciate your time and all of your insights today about We Are Not Ghouls and your experience as a filmmaker in Milwaukee. Thank you. Really looking forward to seeing your film. Thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review, or contact us. Creative MKE is hosted, edited, and produced by me, Elizabeth Gasparka. The show's theme music was written and produced by Bobby Drake. To catch all the latest from Imagine MKE, hit us up at Twitter and Instagram at Imagine underscore MKE or Facebook. Imagine MKE.